You know, of course, that our world is dominated by the religion of secularism. And in that view, neither the beginning nor the end has any meaning at all. We came into existence meaningless. Someday, the world and universe will burn up in a heat death. Again, no significance at all. And so logically then, what happens in between beginning and the end has no meaning either. But people know better. We were created in the image of God. We were created with meaning, for meaning. That's inescapable. So materialists, secularists, the atheists of our day perpetually try to cram significance into what they believe to be a meaningless existence. And when they cannot find meaning in a relationship with God because they've rejected Him, or with their family because they have spurned everything that God says is required for making a healthy family, or with their job or the many jobs they hop to and from just to pursue some kind of purpose, they're left empty. And so people like this are easily convinced that the only way for their life to have meaning is to try to reshape the culture that has brought them so much pain. You see, society, in that view, is the problem. So even though in their own view there is no objective right or wrong, no objective truth, no ultimate law or lawgiver, they gather in masses and march for justice. Have you ever wondered where they get the time and energy? Have you ever seen on the news large groups of people shrieking and in some protest and wondering, don't you have jobs and families and life? And why is it then that they pursue their causes with a religious fervor? Because it is their religion. You and I are here to worship our God. Well, they're on the streets to worship theirs. The religions of progressivism, communism, socialism, they find their meaning in being part of what has been seen in history as the grand march, the grand march towards a final utopia. In fact, this idea points towards a desired end, one that all of humanity and all societies are inevitably marching towards, and there will be a final conclusion that they hope for. Progressives, then, take their view of the end times very seriously. So seriously, in fact, that anything that might slow this grand march must be obliterated. Every society, every institution, every religion, even every individual, and even every idea that will not conform to their view of the grand march must be obliterated because that would be an enemy of human progress. Now, their vision of the future is a fairy tale. It's a false vision that utopia is not actually attainable. But that's irrelevant. And here's the point. A person's vision of the future will inevitably drive their behaviors today. This is true for all of us, not just Christians. 
and our view of the end, but even the world and its view of the end. Now, I make no claims that a Christian can read the Bible from beginning to end, cover to cover, and when they get to the end, they go, ah, all the end time stuff is figured out. No, there are some very challenging issues to deal with in this category. But what I am saying is that you ought to pursue a firm understanding about what God does, in fact, say about the end, and do so without being scared off by the difficulties you may encounter. And I think you ought to do this for at least two reasons. And the first was kind of what I've been setting up and what I've said so far. First, so that you don't inadvertently become swayed by the prevailing eschatology of the godless world around you. In other words, everyone has a view of eschatology. You can either get yours from the Bible or be likely to receive yours from the world. You either believe that God has a plan, He will bring all things to conclusion, He will be the only one to finally and inevitably vindicate all things in complete justice, or it is our job to do that over time. The second reason I think you should do this is simply to be encouraged, to trust in God, to study these things as a demonstration of your ongoing trust in God and His Word. In some ways, at a quick glance, it may even seem that the godless world and culture around us take their eschatology and the pursuit of it more seriously than many Christians. I know you and I don't have all the details figured out yet. This has been a challenging study through Daniel. I certainly don't have all the details figured out. In fact, the view that I held as I started preaching through Daniel is still intact, but it is much more humbled. I'll say that through this process. I've had to invest more time and energy in studying different books and commentaries and, and, and historical accounts of events throughout uh, the, the time frames we've covered throughout this book. I've had to spend more time and energy in the words used in these languages than any of the other books I've preached here at this church. There are a lot of questions to be dealt with. And I'm very sure that for many of you, my portrayal of my interpretation of these texts has not been convincing. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that there are some of you who have thought, well, thanks, Rich, but no thanks on some of these. And I am genuinely at total peace with that. What I have hoped has been accomplished throughout the course of this series, in part, in part, is that in some way this has aided your study of these important things. There's some very challenging stuff here, and we're going to conclude in the same manner we've been in over the course of the last several months. Some technical challenges to deal with and some encouragement at the end. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 12. We'll be in verses 5 through 13. And as usual, I'm going to read through those verses and then pray, ask for the Lord's help, and then uh, we're going to unpack those a verse or two at a time. Let's read it and then pray. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others stood one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. 
Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Let's pray. Lord, be with us this morning. Help us to grow in our love for and trust in your word. Help us to see your plan laid out here. Help us to be humble in our approach to all that you have written, as Daniel was humble here and when he couldn't understand. And Lord, lift us up and equip us for all the work you have for us to do in this age with this important book you've given to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you go with me to verses 5 and 6, back to where we started this morning. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Now, Daniel is right now living out an event that started two chapters ago. Chapters 10, 11, 12 record a single event. Back in chapter 10 at the intro, I showed you that Daniel had an encounter with whom I think was Christ. Jesus himself, pre-incarnate, before him coming into the earth as a little baby, shows up here in an angelic form. He's described as brightness, brilliance, uh, coming off of his face. His, His voice is like the voice of many waters. He's described just like God is described in other places in the Bible. And an angel, presumably Gabriel, who's been the messenger throughout Daniel, speaks to Daniel as Christ presides over all the accounting of the rest of the vision. Now we kind of, in the conclusion, see this scene a little bit again with a few more details. We see who I think is Christ floating above the waters of a stream and one angel on one bank and one angel on the other. And then a voice from one of those two or another voice, we don't know. It's very typical in a prophetic and apocalyptic literature for there to be a voice that kind of announces questions and, and things so that we can know what's going on. And the voice asks, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Now, if you weren't with us for the last few weeks, then you need to be reminded that what happened just before this is that this angel told of the history of the Jewish people from the Persian Empire all the way up until the beginning of the Roman Empire, into the days when Jesus would come upon the earth. And as those stories of one king coming, being taken over by another and by another and by another and so on, the conclusion of that was that at the end of that age, that Greek ruling age, there will come a time upon the people of God that will have been worse than ever before in history. And while it will be physically worse, God will provide spiritual deliverance, the promise of eternal life, resurrection to life and or to death, depending on the the person is what is promised at the beginning of chapter 12. So, the voice here asks, what will be the end? Or how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I take these wonders to refer to the miracle of eternal life that comes about even in the midst of physical 
uh, physical death, physical persecution. And I think that it's talking about that and not just the, when will be the end of this history that you just told us, but when will be the end of this era where eternal life comes even for those who die? I think that because first, the timeline of the historical events is not very difficult. It's simple, even if the dates weren't given. One king lives, then he dies. Another king lives, then he dies. Seems kind of matter of fact. But also he uses the word wonders, which is the Hebrew word for miracles. It's always referring to supernatural things. And third, the only part of the vision that an ending has not yet been told is this one of that age, that time of suffering and persecution where eternal life is granted to those who are written in the book of life. I think that's what's taking place. So I think that this is what the voice is asking. When will this final period of hardship yet deliverance unto eternal life be finished? When will be the end of these wonders? And this is the answer given in verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. I think this is Jesus. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I was reading this passage out loud to my older kids last night. I always do that on Saturdays before I preach a text. And I let them give their little kid questions. They had tons of questions they had about this passage. And I always love my son. Gabe recently has been saying, Dad, you've answered all my questions. Pretty good. I think that's not too bad. Not too bad. Remember that. But Bethany, my my 11-year-old, she asked when I read this particular verse, she goes, Dad, wait, didn't Jesus say that you shouldn't swear to God? So, well, yeah, Jesus did actually say that in the Sermon on the Mount. And she goes, well, then why is it okay for him to do it here? Well, Jesus tells us there are plenty of things that we can't do, he can do, because he is God. The reason we are not to swear, swear to God, is because we might not be able to fulfill whatever we have sworn, and then we will defy the name of God. Jesus doesn't have that problem. When he makes a promise, it will stand. And so, here's Jesus, I think, swearing by him who lives forever, That it would be for a time, times, and half a time. How long? How long until the end of this wonders? And here's the period of time he's saying. Time, times, and half a time. Very clear, right? Now, throughout our... That was a joke, okay? I know it's not super clear. Throughout Daniel, I've been trying to explain a few uh, uh, ways to view, interpretive lenses that people put on to, to view these prophetic passages. Some people look at these events told to Daniel, and they see these events fulfilled, of course, in Daniel's future, but in our past. And so some of the events, they, they look at, at parts of Daniel, and they go, wow, that stuff, that stuff was already satisfied. It was satisfied in the coming of Christ in the first century, or maybe even later, right after that, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And so that's what we would call the preterist lens. You, you'd view things and see, I think this is talking about events in our past and Daniel's future. But there are other parts of the text that we could look at and say, maybe these are things that are in our future as well as Daniel's. And that would be putting on the futurist interpretive lens. Now, I've shown you my cards the entire way through this and made it very clear. I think that in Daniel's visions, some of the visions have been satisfied, fulfilled in the past. 
Some of them, I think, preterist lens. They're talking about the coming of Jesus, something that we celebrate and look back to. But I think that some of the texts are futurist. Some of these things are pointing toward a future time that we have not yet observed in history. I think that this chapter, the conclusion of this chapter, is pointing towards future things. I don't think that this can be satisfied by first century events. So I take off my preterist lenses and go, I'm pretty sure it's clearer when I put on the futurist lenses for this one. So that's where I'm going to be speaking uh, uh, to regarding the rest of our text today. The time, times, and half a time then is an era of history that began at a point, which we'll get to, and continues and persists until the second coming of Christ. That's how I interpret time, times, and half a time. Last week, I did a little bit more on this because we looked in Revelation 12 to compare some texts to see how some of the language used there is the same as what's going on here. And I think it's a highly symbolic period of time. There's a time, times, how many? doesn't say. could be 275 and half a time. And my argument then was that it was a not one, but many, And then one that if God didn't intervene, it would continue quite poorly. In fact, I kind of compare that language to what we can see in history for the people of God in slavery in Egypt. It's even the way it's kind of told when you read about the generation of Jacob. Time, single time, they are now ending up in Egypt. And then times, that's multiple generations of people still in slavery in Egypt. And then half a time could be kind of that moment at which it was going so bad for the people in slavery that unless God intervened and supernaturally rescued them, it would go very poorly for his people. I think it's that kind of thing in mind. It's a, it's a symbolic period of time that God alone knows about. And it's why this kind of veiled language is used when it's talked about. That's my view on this one here. So that period of time will be time times half a time. It'll be that, that duration. And what's the end of it? When the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. When the shattering comes to an end, when it is concluded, which means that there will be a period of time where there will be a scattering, a dispersion, a shattering, a smashing, all these words are used in different English translations to make sense of the Hebrew language being used here. This will happen for a period of time until it is finished. And when that is finished, it's the utter and final end. It's the conclusion of that age. Who then are the holy people? Well, some say it's just the Jews. And to be sure, that's what's chiefly in Daniel's mind. Daniel has been hearing the whole history of his people, the people of God, true Israel, as distinguished from false Israel, who pretends to love God but don't. We've seen that a little bit in here as well. But in this chapter, we're actually provided a little bit of a definition for the holy people or Daniel's people. Verse 1 said this, but at that time, during that time of tribulation and trouble, at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. That means that it's not the false Israelites who just are Israelite by blood, and hate God internally. 
No, it's those who actually are elect of God. Their name's written in the book. This then would also include not just those who are blood Israel, traced their lineage back to Abraham, but even the Gentiles who are grafted into true Israel to become part of that singular family. True Israel, the church of Christ throughout the ages. And that's what I think is meant by the holy people here. In other words, I think that Christians throughout this age are counted in to this number of holy people. Those who come from the biological line of Abraham and those who are grafted in, adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. Now, I hold this with an open hand, but as I consider this passage, the others in Daniel and in Revelation and many other passages in the Bible, it seems to me that the best explanation is that this refers, this passage, the shattering of the power of the holy people, when that happens, the best explanation of this, I think, is that it refers to the end of the church age, the end of our current age. That's what I think is the best answer for this. It is the culmination of this age of persecution and tribulation for God's people that will end in one final showdown that Christ wins in the end. If you were to say, well, Rich, where do you see that in the rest of the Bible? Is there anything else that can compare here? Yes, I think 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us of the same event from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. I want to read for you what Paul wrote there and tell you why I think that compares to this. Paul writes this, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So to clarify, Paul says there in 2 Thessalonians, what Paul tells these Gentile believers is he says that a future day will come where Christ returns, and what does he do on his return? Provides relief or rescue to his people and punishment to his enemy. On that day, in fact, the language in that same letter will continue to say uh, that he'll bring that punishment on those who refuse to accept the truth and so be saved. And when he comes with those, the, the fiery flaming angels on that day, he will come to be glorified in his saints. It sounds to me, as it does to many other uh, uh, scholars in, in history of this, the, the view of this kind of view of the end times is that there is one final day remaining in the future that will be the ultimate showdown where Christ will return to destroy his earthly and heavenly enemies. And on that day, both relief for the saints and punishment for his enemies will happen. And I think that that passage also correlates with this one. That's what I think is the case. So I think Daniel 12, 7 is referring to that same future time of destruction that will come upon the people of God that Jesus will rescue us out of at the final moment. And I'm very aware of the different views here, but each of the others seem to me to create more problems than they solve. And so that's why I humbly submit to you, I think that that's the best way to view this. Now, if any of that's confusing for you, well, you're in good company. Because the original recipient of the letter said the same thing. Look at verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. 
So if you're ever wondering, like, is this a Hebrew thing? Like, if you could speak Hebrew, or if there was something lost in translation, or the language didn't quite translate into English very well, Daniel would have gone, oh, got it, thanks, good deal. No, even Daniel goes, I did not understand. I mean, he heard it. And even Daniel, this recipient, was not certain. He was confused. And so what he says, then I said, oh, my Lord. And he he asked the question that I'm honestly asking as I'm reading this text. Thank, Thank the Lord. Thank Daniel. Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Okay, so I'm confused maybe by the timeline. I'm confused by exactly what the event of the shattering, the power of the holy people. I'm confused exactly what's to make of that. But maybe the best question to ask is, what does that produce? What's the result? If that's going to happen, then what's the conclusion? Great question. The answer is given in the next two verses. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. He doesn't directly answer his question here, not directly, but he reminds us again that the words will be sealed. They'll be preserved all the way until the time of the end. And, and different than in prior times, because he said this a couple other times in Daniel, earlier he told Daniel, hey, you make sure to preserve this, seal this up, shut it up. It doesn't mean to hide it away. It means to preserve so that it will still be available for future generations. That's the idea. Here, this, I think this is Jesus speaking, says it will be preserved. And we live in Utah. We're surrounded by our Mormon neighbors who have been taught from a very young age to not trust the Bible. It's been corrupted over time. But here, Jesus disagrees. Jesus says it will be preserved. People in the end will be able to open this scroll, this book, read this exact thing to be comforted and warned. And so I trust Jesus that he will, as he said, preserve these words, sealed until the time of the end. He says, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. That's again a a point back to what happened earlier in this chapter. It's those who in that time of tribulation and distress and persecution, even those who died in that were given the gift of eternal life. They were given something spiritually so much better. They were redeemed. They were rescued. And so even though they physically died, spiritually they were delivered. And that's what's being said here. That's that purification. That's that make themselves why. Persevering in the faith to the end. Being faithful under even the worst of circumstances. And he says, the wicked shall act wickedly. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? but the wicked shall act wickedly. You know, this is one of those kind of little truths that should be obvious, but sometimes we just need to be reminded by this. If you're, if you're prone to look at the craziness of the world and run into despair and frustration or even anger, talked a little bit about this last week, sometimes you just need to be reminded, you know, the wicked, they act wickedly. That's what we're observing all around us. One of my favorite of Aesop's fables is that of the scorpion and the frog. Uh, you may have heard it. The scorpion meets a frog on the bank of a river, and he asks if he could have a ride to the other side. And the frog says, no, 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 you're a scorpion. You're going to sting me if I let you touch me. The scorpion says, no, if I were to do that, we'd both die. And so the frog thinks it's sound logic and agrees. 
Scorpion jumps on the frog's back and it begins to make its way across the river. Halfway across, the scorpion stings the frog. The frog, dying, envenomated, starts to flail and says, why, why, you fool, now we will both die. And the scorpion says, I couldn't help it, it's in my nature. You and I are a part of this wicked world. And more than that, we contribute to the wickedness of this world every day. And just like that scorpion, it is in our nature to sin. Our only hope then is to get a new nature. You see, as scorpions, as wicked people numbered here, Numbered as those who have sinned against an almighty and holy God, we have contributed to the wickedness of this world. And that is true of all of us, 100% of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one even seeks after God. No one gives God the love he deserves. No one has faith in this perfect and almighty God in and of themselves. You and I deserve justice. Justice is punishment for us. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. You and I deserve death, separation from God. And what Jesus calls a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, hell for forever, is what we deserve because of our sinfulness. The judge of all the earth gave the rules, and we have broken everyone. And that's what we deserve is judgment and justice. But there is a perfect one. There is one who made it all the way through life never sinning, the perfect Son of God. To demonstrate His love for us, God sent His only Son to be born, a little child on this earth, to live a perfect, flawless life. He had brothers and sisters and parents and friends all around Him and observers who even after His life could go, yeah, He actually was perfect. At the end of His life, when they wanted to put Him to death, His enemies hated Him so much, they had to conjure up false witnesses because there was nothing wrong about Him. Nothing that could be under genuine indictment. They had to lie in order to put him on the cross. They hated him so much. And all this happened as a gracious gift that the punishment due for our sins would be leveled against Christ so that for all who believe, the punishment is paid in him and is not for us. If you're not a believer today, you need to repent of your sins. You need to stop thinking that you are worthy of eternal life apart from Christ. You need to stop thinking there's any other God there that can satisfy. You need to turn away from all of that and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And believe that your sins can only be paid for in him and be given a new nature. Well, I'm a scorpion. What what am I to do? You need to be turned into something else. And that's what Christ did for us on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ by belief, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How can we have salvation now? We're no longer the scorpion. We're made into something new. The stinger has been removed by the death of Jesus on our behalf. If you're not a believer, talk to somebody today. Make peace with God Be forgiven of your sins and be counted among those who shall understand and not those who won't. You see, because that's the end. Even in the end, as all these things are happening, none of the wicked shall understand. The wicked doesn't look at the skies, watch the judgments, observe the things going on, and then calculate and go, I get it. No, they don't. 
The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. And that's true even in the end. But those who are wise shall understand. Let me encourage you. This is not saying that if you are wise, you close Daniel and go, I get it. No. You shall. You shall. The day will come where, oh, Lord. Oh, that's what you meant? Praise be to God. But the wicked shall not. One of the things that is shocking to me when I read through Revelation, reread those passages and see the judgments of God poured out on earth, uh, most of those things I, I think are future. I think that's coming in the, in, the, in the future. I think it's what the earth deserves and we're going to get it. And when these judgments, these, these bowls of wrath poured out on the earth, it, it's, it's explained with this cosmic language, the sun being darkened and the moon and the, the, the rivers drying up and, and plants dying and stars falling. It's just this giant judge, cosmic judgment kind of language as God is bringing wrath upon this wicked earth. But one of the most amazing things about it is not the cosmic symbolic language I think that's going on that's it's incredible to, to consider. But the, the craziest part of those passages is that the wicked on earth, those who do not love God, are not atheists. But they, they curl their fingers into a fist and shake it at Almighty God. How dare you? Don't understand. There are no atheists in the end. I don't think there will be a single scientist left who's going, oh, this, is, this just happens. This just, this just a, it's a, you know, we, we drove SUVs for too long. No. They cry out in hatred to God. We know you're up there. Who do you think you are? None of the wicked shall understand. They will act wickedly. But those who are wise, they shall understand. Verses 11 through 12, and from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. One of the reasons we took a pause through Daniel last week and covered Revelation 12 is I wanted to show you how much the language tends to line up. And one of the pieces of language we see that lines up between those two chapters is the 1,290 days. There it says 1,260. And it also says that time, times, and half a time there. But I argued then, and you can go back and check that if you want to spend more time and kind of how I got there. But I think that that's a same time as the time, times, half a time, 1290, 1260, a highly symbolic number. I think it's speaking to the duration of the church age, the period of physical suffering for the people of God that will culminate in Jesus' final return to rescue and judge. And here in this passage, Christ speaking, or if it's an angel speaking, it's kind of hard to tell at this point, speaks and says that that's the duration, 1,290 days, and here's the starting point. From the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. This is two events that are closely related. Abomination of desolation, regular burnt offering taken away. Now this has happened several times in the Bible. Daniel's already lived through one of these. There's no regular burnt offering in his day because the temple's been destroyed. That abomination of desolation has already happened. It's not called that by that title, but literally 
pagans came against the temple, destroyed every part, took the, the artifacts out of the inside, worshiped false gods with them. If that ain't abomination, desolation, it's hard to know what else would be called that. Usually that kind of thing is given that language. He's living and lived through one of those types of events already. In Daniel, he's already heard of two other events that could satisfy what is stated here. Two other events. The first was told in uh, Daniel 9, the second in Daniel 11. Let me show you the Daniel 11 one first. It said this, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. I'm not going to have to rehash everything we did before, but I argued back then that was talking about the particular uh, attack on Jerusalem and the people and the temple under Antiochus Epiphanes uh, in the Old Testament day, in the second century BC. And a huge number of scholars and commentators from a variety of different end times views agree that that's primarily what's being talked about in chapter 11. But Jesus in his day, in Matthew 24, tells his disciples that after their day, they're going to witness and they're going to experience an abomination of desolation that was written in Daniel. So which one are they thinking of? Because if it's after his time, what does that point to? I think that's pointing to chapter 12 and the previously stated one in Daniel chapter 9. Let me show you this one. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Do you see that? Offering done, abomination of desolation. That's there again. So let me state this again for clarity. Here, Daniel is being told of 1,290 days from burnt offering gone, abomination of desolation. That's the starting point. But he's been given two potential starting points. One in the days of Antiochus, and the second in the days of Jesus, which I argued then. It is my view, this is talking about the latter, the ultimate one. You see, the former example, the one of Antiochus Epiphanes, was very temporary. It was a very short period of time, and it actually turned into the Jews actually having great power and control. It, it turned into the rising of the Hasmonean dynasty, which existed just prior to Rome. It was the downfall of Greece. So as you view those things, I don't think that's what's in mind. But the lasting one is the abomination that once and for all finished off the temple. The effects of that moment still persist to this day. I, sure, it's possible that either of those could be the starting point, but I do favor the view that this verse is talking about the events that took place in the first century AD, the coming of Christ and the destruction of the temple. That then would be the starting point for the 1290 days, the time, times, and half a time. That era, undefined, uncertain to us, known only to God, that will persist where the people of God will be pursued and persecuted and hunted and beaten, tribulation that will culminate in a final wicked period where Jesus comes to rescue. That's what I think is the case. And then he moves on to the 1335. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. There is so much speculation about this number. And one of the reasons is because there's no clear repeat of this number anywhere. You can at least say, well, the 1290 days correlates to the 1260, or half a week, or 42 months, or uh, 
or the time times half a time. Those kind of seem to line up a little better. But this 1335 is genuinely just challenging. And I take comfort in the fact that every commentator that I read on this particular one gave their, you know, their view. I kind of think it's this one, but at the end, they all summarize by saying, but we really don't know. It's genuinely challenging. We don't know for sure what this 1335 is talking about. But if the goal in the end is the same as verse 7, the shattering of the holy people of God, this would essentially be saying, blessed is the one who makes it past that final shattering. Blessed is the one who makes it beyond that final day, who has persevered past that final moment of judgment. And it's why I think yet another uh, kind of check in the box for this being a symbolic number rises. It would seem odd for me uh, for this to be satisfied either in a literal 1335, 45 days after the destruction of Jerusalem, everyone was blessed. Are you kidding? Do you, know the, do you know what happened? Do you know what continued to happen to the people of God who are now in slavery and how uh, the ire from the Romans was now turned to the Christians and how centuries of devastation came after? I don't think that's the blessing being talked about here. Same major problems with what to do if it's a literal number of days in kind of a pre-millennial view. I think it's most satisfied by this being a symbolic number, referring to those who have made it past, who persevered all the way up to and beyond the final day. Judge for yourselves. Hard text. Verse 13, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Daniel is told to continue in faithfulness until his time on earth is done. Go your way till the end. Daniel, you just persist in faithfulness. You just continue on. He's at the end of his life. He's probably, he could be close to 80-ish something years old. It's hard to know exactly. We don't know how old he was when he was taken into captivity. Probably his early teens. So here he is at the end of his life being told, go your way till the end. Finish out your course and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. It's been secured. It's been figured. It's been known. It's being revealed to you even now. He will receive his reward. Eternal life for all that has been done in his day. Daniel has been a prophet in a day, preparing for one where there wouldn't be many, even any. And the people of God were to have the writings of Daniel to encourage them throughout the age, throughout the Greek age, up until the day of the Roman age, and all the way through our time now. This is one of the other reasons that I think this is symbolic, because this encouragement is for us, not just for a past people. Well, it's not for us to, to look to and be encouraged by. No, it is for us to look to and be encouraged by. I want to go ahead and conclude with uh, just a couple points of application, which will sound very familiar to you if you've been with us through most of Daniel, because we see a few themes continually hammered out in this story. The first is this, God has numbered the days. There is a plan. And whether or not you follow my interpretation on the symbolic nature of these numbers and where they would probably line up in the timelines of history, one thing that is absolutely certain is God has a plan. He knows it, he's preordained it, he's laid it out and will certainly bring it to pass. And not only that, but he cared to tell us about it. 
to encourage us, to encourage his people throughout the ages that they would have the comfort that they need from his word. God alone will vindicate himself. He will bring final and ultimate justice. And every wrong thing that has ever happened in the history of the world will be perfectly vindicated. One way or the other. Either the offender will be judged for all eternity on behalf of that sin. Or it will have been forgiven us because it will be judged in Christ on the cross. But nothing goes undealt with. You ever struggled with that? Wondering, well, well, what about all these wicked things that are happening? Who's going to do something about this? Christ will. Christ will. The book of the deeds of humanity will be opened up. Will be read aloud in the judgment, judgment seat. And Christ himself will be standing there. And perfect justice will be executed. That's why you and I don't have to respond like the world in panic. To try to make society into a certain way but we are to faithfully do what he's called for us to do. And that brings me to my second application point that is all over Daniel, that we must, as the people of God, persevere in faithfulness. He's got this. He knows what he's doing. What's our job? Be faithful. Do the Great Commission. Make disciples of all the nations. And we are to do that even more so in the days when things look rough. That should be an encouragement to us. We are to take meaning in the important things. Today's Father's Day, and I, I didn't say this in the first, first, uh, first service, but I'll go ahead and share this with you. Fathers, my goodness, it is your responsibility not only to live a faithful life, but to pass on greater faithfulness than you have for yourself. It is your responsibility to teach your kids these things, to tell them what is true, to point them to the Word of God, encourage them in these things, and to warn them of the folly that we see in the world. You you, you see them out there? You see how they're shrieking and cursing and crying out and cutting themselves and shouting to bail, to burn the sacrifice. That's what we're seeing all over again every time we watch the craziness in the world. People are crying out for their gods to act, but they are no God's son. They are no God's daughter. And we are the people of God. We are the people who persist in faithfulness. And if the refining and the purifying that is death, that is giving our lives for the gospel, is what is demanded from us, then do it. Our allotted place is secured. Eternal life is the reward. And we will and must be faithful to the end no matter what. And that means that there's not one word that can be put out of place of God's word. There's not one law that can be turned upside down. There's not one place where we can kind of vacate our trust in what he's demanded, what he has stated, and have any hope for a future. One thing that you find in people who've at one time claimed the name of Christ, maybe grown up in a Christian household, maybe say, I tried that Jesus thing. At some point, inevitably, along the line, they have jettisoned a biblical view of the end. And and I don't mean amill, pre-mill, post-mill, dispensational, preterist, futurist, idealist, historicist, uh, post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath. I don't mean any of that. I mean, Christ will return. And he will judge. And some will go to eternal life. And some to eternal contempt. And if you refuse to accept the truth and so be saved, you will go to hell for forever. But if you repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus alone and love him more than life, 
and persevere to the end. What comes is eternal joy and glory in the presence of our Lord. Inevitably, for somebody to reject the faith, for somebody to introduce the kinds of wicked perversions into their view of scriptures, you must jettison this clear, polarizing teaching. There are only two ends for humanity, heaven or hell. And God has determined who gets there. You and I are to believe and be saved. And if we have, we get to be numbered amongst the wise who will understand these things. This morning we get to take communion in just a second. And this is one of those moments of celebration where we acknowledge all over again how it is that we can have peace with God. There's only one way. It's not by our works. It's not by the fact that we can stop doing all the bad things or start doing enough of the good things. Thank you, Jesus, for your part. We'll do ours. No. By taking of this meal, it is a proclamation of the Lord's death until he returns. It is us saying, apart from the death of Christ, we have no hope. And it is only by his death, burial, and resurrection that we can have any hope at all. Forgiveness of sins. We come before this meal, come before this table as a gathered church in celebration, being reminded that our sins placed him on the cross, and the only way that we have peace of God is because he went there for us on our behalf. If you're a believer today and believe that it is only by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that you can have peace with God, forgiveness of your sins, welcome to the family. Come forward and partake of the elements. You don't have to be a member of this local church to do that. We celebrate this with you. If you're not a believer today, just don't come forward. This is is not a proclamation you can make. I am saved by the blood of Jesus alone. You can't say that. And so just be here and be present and talk to somebody as you leave so we can help you understand the gospel and embrace this good gift of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you. We're so grateful for what you've given to us in your son. We're grateful for what you've preserved in your word. Father, we submit to you. We humble ourselves before you. Sometimes we read the word and we just tremble. We tremble. How are we to understand? How are we to know? What are we to do? And Lord, we're grateful that you've given us enough clarity that with the faith of a child, we can be obedient to you. We have no excuse for any lack of faithfulness. So Lord, please help us to lean into what you've commanded. Help us to grow in our trust, our respect, our submission to what you've said. And to be reminded every day that it is only because of the blood of Jesus poured out on our behalf that we can even approach you in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.